This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is writing a letter to the church that uh, in many ways is unlike any other letter that he wrote. It's the only letter that we have record of that he's not trying to correct a problem or address an issue, and an existing issue in the church. Um, this is the last letter that he writes to the church. There are some personal letters that he wrote to Timothy and Titus that were uh, following this one. But it's the last church letter that he wrote before he went home to be with the Lord. And as such, he seems to step back and take an overall view of the, of the church. The theme of the book is the church. And um, uh, he seems to be stepping back to take an overall big picture view of the church and its place in the world. Um, the things that he identifies to the Ephesians are of utmost importance and necessity for us to grow and mature as believers in the things, that God, the things of God and the things that God wants us to grow and develop in. So in verse 3, starting in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him, in whom also we have, an obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of the glory of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now, as I said, this is the, the, certainly the most flowery writing or statement that Paul ever makes in his, in his letters. And it is so all-encompassing that there's... Uh, I think I asked a question last Sunday morning if you were here. What did you get out of that? Well, there's, it, it's so big, there's only a couple of words that stand out to us. And so for that reason, we have to take it apart a little bit to see what he's talking about. Because each point that he makes, and he makes seven specific points about who we are or what we have in Christ Jesus. If we don't identify and stop and, and take it apart enough to identify it, then we're going to miss out on what Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost belongs to us. So let's pick up in verse 7. He is just uh, identified. He starts off, interestingly enough, he starts off with the idea of being chosen before the foundations of the world. That means before the universe was created. It talks about being predestinated or predestined to be children of God. And there's a lot of misconception and misunderstanding in the body of Christ about predestination. But he mentions it even further in this, uh, uh, this giant sentence, big picture sentence. And, um, uh, but after having said those things, 
he makes mention that uh, brings us to the, the crux of the issue, the real point, and that is our redemption in Jesus. Verse 7, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, this is almost word for word um, Colossians 1.14. And Colossians and Ephesians were parallel uh, books, uh, sister books, letters that were written from Paul's imprisonment, probably the second imprisonment in Rome, uh, right at the end of his life. And um, uh, the difference in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, the difference in Colossians 1.14 and this verse is that Colossians 1.14, the, the ancient manuscripts, the, the oldest and the, the most reliable text of the, uh, uh, of the scripture does not contain through his blood. This is the only scripture that Paul specifically identifies that our redemption price was the blood of Jesus in this setting. He said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption means the ransom. It means to buy back. Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, and and for me that means the Holy Ghost wants us to know, that we have been bought back through his blood. Now there's two points that that, uh, are, are worth considering here in this, and that is to buy something back, you had to have it to begin with. Otherwise, it's just a purchase. Now, the Bible does say that we are the purchased possession of God, but the reason we're the purchased possession of God is because we belong to him to begin with. He lost us, not through anything of himself, but through man's transgression and sin in the Garden of Eden and had to buy us back. And the purchase price was the blood of Jesus. Man was originally created to be in the image of God. He was originally created to be the possession of God, the family of God. God breathed in him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. The only source of his life was God. His body was made. It was just a shell. And God placed the living spirit within mankind or within Adam that passed on to mankind. But Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Their sin, their stepping off the path, their deviation from what God told them to do caused God to lose his prized possession. Man died spiritually. He didn't just turn away from God. He didn't just drift away. He changed his nature. His spiritual nature was altered. Now, the Old Testament tells us all throughout the book of Leviticus about the shedding of blood for the Old Testament sacrifices. There were a number of sacrifices that were uh, commanded to be made. The most uh, uh, familiar one, the, the big one, was the Day of Atonement. When a sacrifice was to be made, blood was to be spilled. The blood of an animal was to be spilled. Of the, the, and the animal had to be of, of perfect appearance, as perfect as they could get. It had to be examined. There couldn't be any marks or blemishes in the animal itself or in its coat or in its, in its uh, fleece or anything like that. And um, uh, as a result, God accepted that blood as a temporary sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now, the Bible says in Leviticus, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the reason for that is because the life of the, uh, of the flesh is in the blood. So God accepted on a temporary basis imperfect or impure blood to cover man's sins. But that's all that could ever happen is those sins to be covered. Forgiveness, is, uh, forgiveness of sins is really an Old Testament term. In the New Testament, it's not forgiveness of sins as much as it is redemption or remission 
of sins. Remission of sins is the removing of them. He talks about the remission of sins here a little bit later. It's spoken of or referred to as forgiveness, but it's really the word remission. So God had to have something that could wipe away man's sin. I've looked at this from a couple of different angles, and I'm not sure which way is better. On some, uh, on uh, on one hand, I think it might be better for us to have been uh, to have grown up as uh, as Jews who had to keep the Old Testament sacrifice, the Old Covenant sacrifices, because that would make us aware of the necessity of blood, the necessity of the shedding of blood regarding sins. But then I look at the Jews and I think, well, the people that did that were so accustomed to slaughtering animals and offering blood that they didn't realize the importance or the significance of what was being done, so they took it all for granted. And they missed the boat completely when Jesus was, uh, was offering his own blood and the significance thereof. So I'm not sure which way is right or better. On one hand, I'm thinking it would be better if we had, had participated in some of those sacrifices because then we would realize how that God turns himself away from our sin once the shedding of blood is accomplished. And then if we understood that the remission of sins was accomplished by pure, perfect blood a perfect man who is the essence of God himself, then we would recognize that there is nothing that God would ever or could ever hold against us. Now, you need to realize something, folks. We let the devil beat us up so often about the things that we've done wrong. But if your sin, any sin that you commit, if any sin that you commit is greater or bad enough, Maybe that's a better way to say it. If any sin that we ever commit is bad enough to put something between us and God, it's greater than the blood of Jesus. My point is very simply this. Do you realize, you should realize, how impossible it is, impossible for God to hold your sin against you because of the blood of Jesus? If we realize that, then the condemnation of the devil would be nothing. If we came to realize that, I mean, really understand it. Anytime the devil, maybe the next time the devil starts trying to beat you up about what you did wrong, ask him, is it greater than the blood of Jesus? You start talking to the devil about the blood of Jesus, pretty soon you'll be by yourself. He will leave you alone. He does not want to have that conversation. But there's this underlying thought, this subliminal idea that even though we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, there are still those things that we do that makes God not like us, or at least not like us as much. And that's impossible. In whom we have redemption. You have been bought back, repurchased by the blood of Jesus. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing school is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. Now, whatever somebody, you or me or somebody else might think of why Jesus healed the sick, Matthew 8, 17 tells us why he healed everybody that was sick. Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway 
and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. What part of you should remain in bondage? Think of it like this. If somebody kidnaps a loved one of yours and you pay everything that you have, you liquidate all of your assets, you, you grab every bit of money that you can get your hands on, borrow what you don't have access to on your own, you get everything you have together. It costs you everything to pay the ransom. How would you expect that loved one to act after they're free? Wouldn't it be stupid for them to act like you don't like them? Wouldn't it be worthless for them to hold something against themselves for ever having been caught to begin with? When you've shown your love and your care in purchasing them with everything you had. That's what the Bible says Jesus did for us. God did that by sending his own son. He gave us everything he had. Yet we walk around thinking God's mad at us. If he's mad at you, he wouldn't have given his son for you. But since he did, he's on your side and can only be on your side. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that's redemption of sins or remission of sins, literally, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. One uh, preacher that uh, I'm familiar with um, teaches a lot on the subject of grace. And as a result, he's, uh, uh, like me, uh, been, well, felt that most of the common definitions of grace come up short. The most common definition of grace that's used in the body of Christ today is unmerited favor. Well, I don't know about you, but most of the time I hear the unmerited more than I do the favor. That's the first thing that that comes to me, and that's probably my religious background and, and wrong training and wrong teaching and so forth. But uh, but that that the definition of grace as unmerited favor just really doesn't do it for me. If you want to call it favor, I'm okay with that. But he's uh, he's kind of felt some of the same things over the years, and he said that the Lord really dealt with him personally about this subject. And he said as he was reading this one day, it came to him that for him, in his estimation, this is the greatest definition of grace, right here in Ephesians chapter one. According, verses 7 and 8, according to the riches of his grace wherein he has abounded toward us. He says grace is God abounding toward us. Well, that's hard to argue with. Because grace is, in, is in, uh, uh, inclusive of everything that Jesus did. The only grace, the only favor, the only abundance that there can be from God to mankind is through the blood or the finished work of Jesus. Grace, I define grace as the finished work of Jesus. But what does the finished work of Jesus do? It enables God to abound toward us in all goodness. Now here Paul talks about God abounding toward us in two specific things, wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and prudence. These words are similar, but there is a shade of difference between the two. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. He's talking about a spiritual impartation. Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, he said, Christ has made unto us wisdom. Christ has made unto us wisdom. In other words, there's a, a, a seed of wisdom. 
that becomes ours is a part of the change of nature, being born again, being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. There's an element of wisdom that can be developed and should be developed through the teaching of the Word, through meditating in the Word and putting the Word in practice in your life. But that wisdom is also followed up with prudence. Now, prudence, the word, Greek word prudence really means, literally means intellectual or moral insight. But in common uh, words, in common language, prudence is common sense. I'm not sure you can use that term anymore because sense doesn't seem, seem to be too common. But here's what he's trying to say. For the born-again believer who walks in the Word, for the person in Christ who lives his life according to the Word, who renews his mind to the Word, there should be a supernatural aspect to our understanding in life. I've always, I, I was amazed at Brother Hagin. Because there would be situations and, and controversies that would come up and boy, people would be arguing and they'd argue for weeks. And they'd, they'd somebody put their point of view over here and somebody make their point of view over there. And, and boy, all the, the Bible school students and, and some of the rest of us, we'd get caught up in this controversy and it'd be back and forth, who's right? And somebody believed they had some brand new revelation from God and somebody else would say, no, it's like this instead and so forth. And Brother Hagin would come out with a one-liner that would just settle the issue. He did that all the time. He'd let everybody argue about it for three or four weeks and finally said, now I know there's a controversy in the body of Christ about such and such, but bang, bang, bang. And in five words or less, usually, he just dismantled the whole thing. And all of us that were arguing for weeks would sit there and look at each other and say, well, yeah, that has to be right. Now, what causes that? I believe that's available to every believer. That didn't happen to Brother Hagin because he's a prophet. That happened to Brother Hagin because he drew on this wisdom. He recognized and believed for this wisdom that Christ has made unto us to work, to work and operate in, in, in great, with great efficiency, to flow. There should be a supernatural flow to the believer's life. And the more and more you develop yourself in the Word and train yourself in the Word and act on the Word of God, the more and more... The issues, the major issues of life, the things that everybody else gets upset about should be easily settled for you. God doesn't expect us to go back and forth ping-ponging with different ideas in, in life. One of the things that Paul talks about um, later on in this, uh, this letter is not being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, growing up so that we not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. What is that? That's the application of wisdom. See, when you learn who you are and what belongs to you and what the Word says about certain issues that, that involve you in life, you'll be grounded. You won't be pulled away because the world says this. You won't be pulled in the other direction because the world says that. See, the world will teach you that capitalism is bad. It's evil. But the Word says differently, so I don't care what the world says. The world says that global, global climate change and all that kind of stuff is going to end the world if we don't do something meaning spend a lot of money. Well, the Word says differently, so I don't care what anybody lies about the climate change. And it is a hoax, folks. It is a hoax. But when you know what the Word says, and Paul is talking big picture here. When, when Paul is talking about God has given us wisdom, he's talking about wisdom to understand the whole thing. He's talking about wisdom to understand the, the, the plan, the purpose of God. When you know what the plan and the purpose of God is, you're not worried about what everybody else is worried about. 
You see things from a spiritual standpoint. I look at politics a whole lot different than I used to. I used to get all wound up about this one winning or that one losing or or this kind of stuff. I don't care anymore because it doesn't matter because I've stepped back to see what God's big picture is. And looking, looking back at where I used to be, I can see that I was putting a lot of hope and a lot of faith and a lot of trust in somebody doing the job. But there's only one person that I'm looking for to do the job now, and that's Jesus. No matter who wins, no matter who loses, no matter who gets involved, no matter who does what. Well, Pastor Mike, that sounds defeatist. I'm not defeated at all. I've just got my trust and my confidence in the right person. Yeah, but aren't you going to get involved? You bet I'm going to get involved. I'm going to vote the right way. But what if my guy doesn't win? Has God changed? Not a bit. Has the word changed? Not one bit. Paul is taking a big picture of you. He's leaving the church a big picture of you. So he says, according to the riches of his grace, God is abounded. How much is abounding? How much is that? How much all wisdom and prudence do we have? You've got access to everything that you ever need. James wrote it this way. He said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, here's something that some people will use uh, and try to create some kind of controversy or say there's a contradiction in Scripture. If 1 Corinthians 1.30 says Christ has made unto us wisdom, then why in the world is James saying if you lack wisdom? Well, James is talking about a specific issue. He's saying if you count it all joy when you find yourself in diverse temptations or trouble, adversity. If you lack wisdom to know what to do in your specific issue, the adversity that you're in, then ask of God and God will give it to you. Where does that wisdom come from? It doesn't come from outside. There's not a voice that... I've never had God speak to me with a voice from heaven. Have you? I've had him say some things to me that sounded loud. And I know to pay attention, big attention to those things. Those are major issues that are coming up. But where does the wisdom come from that we ask God for? The only place that wisdom dwells, and that's in our spirits. Part of this all wisdom and prudence that's abounded to us. Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. We should have the answers. We as Christians, as believers, walking in the word, should have the answers to the situations in our lives. And we do if we just know how to rely on them. How to gain access to that inner wisdom. Verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Notice he talks about wisdom with God's master plan. Having made known unto us. Not we're hoping that he will someday. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now what's a mystery? Mystery is something that's hidden. But notice he says it's not hidden to us. There is a mystery to the will of God. The world is in the dark concerning the will of God. A lot of the church is in the dark concerning the will of God. Not because that's the way God wants it, but because they haven't developed the wisdom that God has given them through the word. But a lot of the church world, and certainly the the world outside the church, is up in the air wondering, well, what's going to happen next? How's this going to work? But because the mystery of God's will is revealed to us, we've got inside information. Inside information. I'm, I'm kind of amused as some people talking about if we don't do something, well, the Pope. Thanks for your help, sir. <laughs> On his visit to the United States here recently, his big thing was climate change. 
biggest threat facing America or facing the world today is climate change, global climate change. Well, goodness gracious, if we don't spend billions and billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars to change the climate, which nobody's come up with an idea how you do that anyway. But people are this doom and gloom stuff. Oh, I've got to do something about global climate change. If we don't do it, it'll be the end of the world. I don't know about you, but I've been through about five ends of the world so far. Back in the 70s, it was the ice stuff. We don't do something, there's going to be another ice age. That was supposed to happen by 1995, by the way. It's always this terrible stuff. Folks, the earth is not going to end until the Bible says that it's supposed to. Oh, but we're running out of resources. There's more resources to last through our generations than anybody's ever figured out. The earth is going to last through the church age. It's going to last through the tribulation when some really nasty stuff is going to happen. You'd think the, the earth's resources would be depleted by some of that kind of stuff. I mean, a third of the earth's seas are going to be dried up. But then it's going to last for another thousand years after that. So I don't know what everybody's up in arms about. See, I don't get caught up in this stuff because I know what the Bible says. The mystery of God's will has been revealed to us. So I'm not going to get caught up in all this other stuff. But see, as believers, we've got inside information. I don't expect the world to know that. I don't expect the world to accept that. If, they just, if, the, if the United Nations would read and believe Ezekiel 37 and 38, it would solve a lot of the problems. That have clear understanding, clear direction on what to do and how to handle things, and and who's who means what when they say this and all the other kind of stuff. But that's been revealed to us, not the world. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He has purposed in Himself. Now, folks, I want you to see a couple of things. Notice back in uh, in verse five. It says, God, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, because God wanted to. God made a place in Christ because he wanted to. Now look at verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. He's saying the same thing, because God wanted to. Paul says four times in this one sentence how much God wanted to. Not because we wanted to, although if we had good sense, we would want it. But God wanted it this way. God created this plan that includes you and sets you at the right hand of, of uh, with sets you at His right hand alongside Jesus because He wanted to, according to the good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself. That, he's still talking about the mystery of his will being revealed, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, dispensation means administration, fullness means completion. That in the administration of the completion of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. In other words, he's saying, here's the big picture mystery of God's will that's been revealed. That when the time is right, God's going to gather everything together under Jesus' control. James 1.22 tells us to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. It's when we put the Word of God in practice and act on what God said to do, that's when the blessings of God become real in our lives. 
Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Those are seven things that Paul identifies. Seven things that he identifies that are part of God's master plan for you. Is there any area of your life he didn't cover? Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.